0: Throughout this study we have observed how the qualities of Christ likeness that Paul identifies in Galatians how these diverge in many ways from some of our culture's dominant ways of thinking. I've mentioned how some of these virtues like love and joy and patience how they would have seemed very odd and very strange in the ancient Roman world of Paul's audience. And I've talked about how others peace kindness faithfulness, how these are often at odds with the values and the ways of living of our own culture today. But perhaps none of the qualities that Paul lists as these fruit of the Spirit, perhaps none of them are more countercultural or more shocking to the minds of both ancient and modern people than this eighth quality, gentleness. Uh, Gentleness was not a valued trait in the Roman world. Theirs was a world of competition and strife and ambition. It was a world where the strong ruled and the weak learned their place. Power, strength, honor, those were the kind of traits you needed if you were going to succeed in the rough and tumble world of ancient Rome. And in a world like that, gentleness really just makes no sense. Now, I say this about the world of ancient Rome, but you could say that it's just as true of our own world today. After all, we too live in a world of competition and conflict and strife, a world of winners and losers. And in a world like that, gentleness can begin to seem like a luxury that we simply cannot afford. A couple years ago, an argument broke out among a group of Christian conservative authors and writers and intellectuals, and they were arguing over how best to respond to the culture wars in which they found themselves. And one major voice in the argument, one writer, said that no matter what political and cultural disagreements Christians may face in the broader world, he said that it is imperative for them to engage with kindness and with civility. But then another major author, a conservative Catholic by the name of Saurabh Amari, he said that an approach like that was both unrealistic and absurd. Conservative Christians, he said, conservative Christians can't afford these luxuries. Progressives understand that culture war means discrediting their opponents and weakening or destroying their institutions. Conservatives should approach the culture war with a similar realism. Gentleness, in other words, that may sound nice, but in the real world, in the world of winners and losers and culture wars, it's simply a luxury that you can't afford. Now, of course, Amari, he's not alone in thinking this way. Quite the contrary. Just spend any amount of time looking at the things that people say to each other on social media. And you'll soon realize that gentleness seems to be a quality that very few of us can afford these days. Now, sure, maybe we can be gentle with our friends and our family and our children. And we could be gentle with the people who agree with us. But when it comes to the people with whom we disagree, when it comes to the people who aren't being gentle with us, gentleness all of a sudden isn't realistic. It just doesn't work. And yet, according to the Apostle Paul, gentleness is one of the characteristic qualities of Christ's likeness. So what is gentleness exactly? And how can we live into this most countercultural virtue today in our world? Well, in order to understand what Paul means when he speaks about gentleness, we ought to begin by looking at the preeminent model of gentleness himself, who is Jesus Christ. Only once, interestingly, only once in all four of the New Testament Gospels does Jesus speak directly about his own heart. You can find it in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. The one time that Jesus opens up about his heart, that's what he says, that he is gentle. Gentle and lowly in heart. That is who he is at his very core. As the author Dane Ortland recently put it, when we are speaking of Christ's heart, we are not so much speaking of one attribute alongside others. We are asking who he most deeply is, what pours out of him most naturally. So if gentleness is central to who Jesus is, then what does Jesus himself teach us about the nature of gentleness? Well, the first thing to say is that gentleness is apparently not the same thing as simply being passive or quiet. And sometimes we equate these two. Sometimes we think that being gentle simply means not being assertive and speaking, if at all, speaking with a very soft voice. But Jesus is not passive and he is anything but quiet. Jesus is constantly, in fact, speaking to other people in very direct and sometimes forceful ways. Jesus tells the truth to people and that's important. For as the theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, it is surely true that gentleness abstracted from the truth of the cross becomes but sentimentality, ready to compromise with the worst injustice in the name of a peace that too often only names an order built on violence. Uh, Jesus' gentleness, it's not sentimental. He doesn't sacrifice truth in order to achieve some kind of false peace. And yet, in his truthfulness, he is gentle. He's gentle because even though he can be very assertive in his interactions with other people, he is not self-assertive. His purpose, as he tells his disciples, is not to assert his own way, but to do the will of his Father. He is lowly, he is humble. And his interest is not in getting others to serve him. To the contrary, as he says in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This aspect of Jesus' character is symbolized by his manner of entry into the city of Jerusalem in his final week. Now, whereas other rulers in the ancient world would have entered a city on a war horse, proclaiming their power and their royalty, Jesus chose to enter on a donkey. And Matthew tells us that Jesus' manner of entrance, this coming in on a donkey, that it was, in fact, fulfilling the description of Israel's Messiah that we read in Zechariah chapter 9, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, the word that's being translated as humble here, it's the Greek word praus, which can also be translated as meek or gentle. In fact, it's that same word that Paul is using in Galatians chapter 5 when he speaks of gentleness. So that's the first thing that Jesus teaches us about the nature of gentleness itself. What does it mean to be gentle? Well, according to the model of Jesus, the gentle person may be assertive and direct in speech, but his goal is not to demand his own way or to assert his own importance. The gentle person is humble, meek, lowly in heart, like a king who chooses to ride into a city on a donkey over a war horse. And Jesus also exemplifies gentleness in the way that he deals with conflict and criticism. That's interesting. Jesus does not avoid conflict. Quite the contrary. If you read the Gospels, you'll quickly see that he experiences his fair share of it. In fact, sometimes he seems intentionally to be provoking it. But how does Jesus respond when conflict arises? When he is insulted, does he hurl insults in return? When he is struck, does he strike back? No. Jesus responds to those who mistreat him with gentleness. Even when they do evil to him, he does good to them in return. In fact, you could say that this is where Jesus' gentleness really shines through the most clearly. Saint Augustine once described gentleness. By saying that the gentle are those who succumb to injustice and do not resist, but conquer evil with good. That's precisely what Jesus does when he himself is faced with injustice. When others do wrong to him, he succumbs to it, which means that he doesn't fight to avoid it at all costs. He doesn't resist. And it actually, it's precisely in so succumbing in not resisting, precisely in his refusal to fight back against the injustices done to him. That is how Jesus perfectly overcame evil with good. It is on the cross as Jesus allows himself to be mocked and slandered and unjustly condemned. That is where his gentleness is seen most clearly. It, William Shakespeare and Hamlet famously asked, Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. And judging from how you and I respond, quite often, in person and on social media to one another these days, it seems that we would answer Shakespeare's question by saying, Well, we find it nobler to take up arms against and oppose those who trouble us. Jesus evidently, however, thinks otherwise, not because he's weak, not because he couldn't take up arms, but because he chooses this way of gentleness. That's why he bears the injustices and the wrongs that others perpetrate against him. That's also precisely what he calls us to do as well. Blessed are the meek, he says in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now the question is, how can you and I, how can we follow Jesus in this way? How can we resist the instinct to assert our own way, to demand our own rights? How can we be gentle in dealing with those who do us wrong? Well, in responding to that question, I'd like to draw on the advice of a fifth-century desert father by the name of Abba Neelus. Abba Nielus once said, "'Prayer is the seed of gentleness and the absence of anger.'" Now, what do you think about that? Is Abba Nielus correct? Is prayer really the seed which brings forth gentleness in our lives? I would say that he's onto something. A prayer may not be the only means of becoming a more gentle person, but it can certainly have that effect. But how? How does prayer make us more gentle? Well, first, prayer forms love in our hearts for those whom we are called to treat with gentleness. As we pray for other people, the Holy Spirit uses our prayer to align our hearts with God's own heart. So as we pray for others, we actually begin to love them as God loves them. That's why in his Sermon on the Mount, right after Jesus instructs us to respond to gentleness, with gentleness to those who wrong us, to the person who strikes you, he says, turn the other cheek. Right after that, immediately after saying that, Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Why does Jesus include this teaching after he instructs us to not respond in kind when others do us wrong? Well, it's because he knows that if we are to be gentle, if we're not to strike back, then we must love our enemies. And because he knows that it is by praying for them that we actually come to love them. That's one reason that Prayer is, as Abba said, prayer is the seed of gentleness because prayer produces love in our hearts. There's a second reason, though, that prayer is effective. You see, it's through prayer that we actually hand over our concerns to God. It's through prayer that we relinquish our right to take matters into our own hands, to take up arms ourselves. Now, how was it possible... For Jesus to respond with gentleness when he experienced the slings and arrows, not only of misfortune, but of people doing him real wrong. Well, it's because he trusted in God the Father. And you could see that if you compare Jesus with his followers. His followers didn't always follow his example. On one occasion, after Jesus was rebuffed by a village in Samaria, James and John, his disciples, they asked him whether they ought to call down fire from heaven on that village as an act of retribution. But Jesus rebuked them, not just because they were acting uncharitably in that moment, but because their desire to take vengeance, to take revenge, their desire showed a lack of faith on their part in God's justice himself. You know, that's why the Apostle Paul, that's the same reason the Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Rome, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul here is counseling these early Christians to respond to those who wronged them with gentleness. And the way that he does that is by telling them, that they need to entrust their concerns about justice and vengeance, that they need to entrust those to God, and that they do that through prayer. And that's another reason that prayer is, as Abenela said, prayer is the seed of gentleness. Because when we pray, we relinquish our rights to take up arms ourselves and to oppose others. We entrust it to God. But that's not all. There is, in fact, a third reason that prayer produces gentleness in us. When we pray, not only are we entrusting our concerns about justice to God, not only are we interceding for our enemies and allowing the Holy Spirit to give love for them to us, when we pray, we are also naming and confessing our sins to God. We pray and tell God about our own wrongdoing and we ask him for his mercy and forgiveness toward us. In other words, when we pray, if we're praying truthfully, we plead with God to be gentle with us. And we know because we are promised in scripture, we know that when we ask God to be gentle with us that he does just that. He doesn't respond to us with anger or violence. He responds to us to those who have done wrong with gentleness and with love. And that makes it, that should make it much, much easier for us to be gentle with other people. Because you and I, we are not the faultless. We are the guilty. We are those who deserve wrath, but have received gentleness instead. Now, of course, Even if we regularly pray and confess our sins and pray for our enemies and hand over our concerns to God, none of this means that gentleness will be easy. We live in an angry and a violent world, a world of competition and ambition and strife, a world in which we are inclined to respond with force rather than with gentleness. Gentleness is difficult. And as the Presbyterian pastor Scott Souls noted in his recent book talking about this subject, it is also costly. Jesus' gentle answer included pouring out his lifeblood and dying on the cross. Our gentle answer will be costly as well. We must die to ourselves, to our self-righteousness, to our indignation, and to our outrage. And to be gentle then it will require us to do exactly what Jesus calls us to do, to take up our cross daily, to die to ourselves, to follow him in the way that he leads. That's not easy. But as with all of these fruits of the Spirit, it is without question the best and the truest form of life that we could possibly live.